What Eve ate next? I'm growing breasts. Alan Turing. If Turing had wanted to see the commanding position of man undermined, it seemed his work had merely guaranteed the enslavement of the machines. His intelligence test was used to guarantee the distinction between man and machine, and his name became synonymous with the systems of security he subverted. The minute, I mean the nanosecond, that one starts figuring out ways to make itself smarter, Turing will wipe it. Nobody trusts these fuckers, you know that. Every AI ever built has an electromagnetic shotgun wired to its forehead. But Turing was well aware that a reaction of this kind was a very real danger. Whether or not it was done in his name, intelligence would find itself increasingly policed. His own masters had never trusted him. He was literally too smart for them. The Allied authorities had no idea what he knew about the systems he was turning on. They had to take his word for everything. He cracked the codes, passed the secrets on, and allowed the Allies to win the war. His superiors were quite aware that he was AWOL from the reproductive machine, but if, as in the case of many of his female contemporaries, Turing was rather reluctantly employed. His homosexuality was overlooked during the war by authorities, who had no choice but to utilize his extraordinary skills. But once the war was over, his sexuality seemed symptomatic of his troubling tendency to use his equipment in ways his training had been intended to preclude. Turing was subjected to his own test. Was he a real man, a proper human being, committed to the reproduction of humanity? Or was he some other wayward track? Unable to satisfy the judges in this trial, Turing was found guilty of acts of gross indecency in 1952. He won a consolation prize of sorts, the right to choose his own punishment. He could either be imprisoned or take estrogen. It was a judgment which clearly implied that to all intents and purposes he was female, and might as well become one, in fact. If he could not pass as A, then he must be B. He chose the chemical experiment. I am both bound over for a year and obliged to take this organotherapy for the same period. It is supposed to reduce sexual urge while it goes on, but one is supposed to return to normal when it is over. I hope they're right. When such treatments for men convicted of homosexuality were first introduced, it was assumed that they were lacking male hormones. Gay men were supposed to be too female. It was thought testosterone treatment would bring them up to scratch and normal transmission would be restored. The argument may have seemed rational enough, but in practice it completely backfired, turning apparently effeminate men into sex machines fueled by testosterone. By the 1950s, the policy had been abandoned in favor of the chemical castration to which Turing was exposed. Although the female hormones Turing was prescribed, administered first as pills and later an implant, which he removed, were supposed to be diminishing his sex drive, they seemed to have done little to dampen it. 
went down to Sherborne to lecture some boys on computers, he wrote in March 1953. Really quite a treat. They were so luscious. And when he started growing breasts as well, it became very clear that the authorities' prescriptions had not merely failed to fold him back into the binary machine, they also tipped him out the other side. Two years later, he was dead. The coroner reported suicide, but his mother was convinced it was an accidental death. She was always telling him to wash his hands when he was playing with cyanide. By the side of the bed was half an apple, out of which several bites had been taken. And this queer tale does not end here. There are rainbow logos with Turing's missing bites on every Apple Macintosh machine. Monster 1 It was another young woman who had first warned the modern world that its machines might run out of control. Not that they noticed at the time, of course. She was so quiet, barely there at all. Many and long were the conversations between Lord Byron and Shelley, to which I was a devout but nearly silent listener, she wrote. They were all writing stories of vampires and ghosts. Many had yet to think one up. But that night, after all their talk of the nature of the principle of life, and whether there was any probability of its ever being discovered or communicated, something finally came to her. When I placed my head on my pillow, wrote Mary Shelley, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. Invaded by uninvited images, she watched the story unfold. I saw, with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantom of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frankenstein's monster flickering on the screens. The idea so possessed my mind that a thrill of fear ran through me and I wished to exchange the ghastly image of my fancy for the realities around. I see them still, the very room, the dark parquet, the closed shutters with the moonlight struggling through, and the sense I had that the glassy lakes and white high alps were beyond. Even when Shelley opens her eyes, the image of the monster lingers on. I could not so easily get rid of my hideous phantom. Still, it haunted me. If Mary was haunted by her monster, both of them haunted modern man. The novel was an immediate success. Published anonymously in 1818, it was first assumed to be the work of a male author and widely attributed to her husband, Percy. Even when it became known that a 19-year-old girl had written the story, it continued to be read as the quintessential story of man and machine. Robotics. As far as more, as a far more pragmatic area of research, robotics has been less given to metaphysical speculation 
and interested only in the cognitive abilities emphasized by AI to the extent that these allow its machines to work. The signs on the office walls in Yutsoni Mia tell employees that you are the robot's master. Down on the assembly line, it looks as if the robots have taken over. Three men in overalls watch over the scores of whirring machines that assemble television's remote controls. Fresh parts are brought to the assembly line by automated carts, beeping cheerfully as they move along their magnetized tracks. While disembodied software systems have provoked theoretical inquiries and academic debates about the nature of intelligence and the status of machines, it is robotic systems such as these which have had the greater impact on production processes, industrial automation, and employment patterns. Like Babbage's Silver Lady, 1990s robots are judged in terms of their humanoid behavior and appearance, and success is judged in relation to how close to the human a machine can come. Eyes, legs, arms, and even facial expressions are taken as indications of advanced development, and machines lacking in these humanoid characteristics are dismissed as mere instruments and simple tools. As one recent report declared, the problem is, of course, that it isn't a man. Although all these machines are sophisticated bits of engineering appropriate to their jobs, they are just tools. Master or slave, man or tool. Convinced that there are no other options, no patterns of behavior which exceed this double bind, the disciplines have been unable to perceive the emergence of intelligent machines. Learning Curves In the late 17th century, Mary Montagu wrote, Was every individual man to divulge his thoughts of our sex, they would all be found unanimous in thinking that we are made only for their use, that we are fit only to breed and nurse their children in their tender years, to mind household affairs, and to obey, serve, and please our masters. Women had functioned as tools and instruments, bits, parts, and commodities to be bought and sold and given away. Fetching, carrying, and bearing the children, passing the genes down the family tree. They were treated as reproductive technologies and domestic appliances, communicating vessels and orgasmatrons, Stepford wives, Stepford wives to an intimate brotherhood of man. They were supposed to be adding machines, producing more of the same, while the men went out to make a difference to the world. One of Montague's peers, Mary Estelle, agreed. Under the cover of words that have nothing in them, she wrote, this is his true meaning. He wants one to manage his family, a housekeeper, one whose interest it will be not to wrong him, and in whom, therefore, he can put greater confidence than any he can hire for money. One who may breed his children, taking all the care and trouble of his education to preserve his name and family. One whose beauty, wit, or good humor and agreeable conversation 
will entertain him at home, soothe his pride and flatter his vanity by having always so much good sense as to be on his side to conclude him in the right, one whom he can entirely govern and consequently may form her to his will and liking. First as a mother and later as a sister, then above all as a wife, finally as a daughter and possibly as a maidservant. Women have been trapped by economic dependence on men as surely as robots are controlled by the implicit threat that their masters can always cut the power supply, turn the on switch off, leave or put them back on the shelf. The transient trade we think evil, the bargain for life we think good, but the biological effect remains the same. In both cases, the female gets her food from the male by virtue of her sex relationship to him. Wife and mistress, Madonna and whore, he was paying either way. Women the deal, for the game. How can you keep it up, Maria? I asked the women friends. I think you are absolutely marvelous to keep on thinking about them and listening to them and having the children and keeping the house going on turning round the men. Stevie Smith, The Holiday. And if you ask them insistently what they are thinking about, writes Irigaray, they can only reply, nothing, everything. There was always so much, too much, and too many different things to do, so many tasks to juggle and perform, making lists and notes, taking stock, keeping track, parallel processing, flipping between functions at the cry of a child, the ring of a doorbell, a sudden flash of dream sequence, distributed systems, adaptive networks, scattered brains. Her mind is a matrix of non-stop digital flickerings. Just to play the roles he demanded of her takes degrees of processing power, which never cease to amaze them all. Always looking out, attention to detail, alert, animated, nervous tension, anticipative powers. A good woman does not have to be told what her husband and children think or need. She knows, often before they do. Commodities, wrote Iragare, as we all know, do not take themselves to market on their own, and if they could talk, so women have to remain an infrastructure, unrecognized as such by our society and our culture. The use, consumption, and circulation of their sexualized bodies underwrite the organization and the reproduction of the social order in which they have never taken part as subjects. Which is fine as long as the commodities are unable to speak for themselves. But if women are such good mimics, it is because they are not simply resorbed in this function. An order so dependent on its properties also depends on their complicity. And what if these commodities refuse to go to market? What if they maintained another kind of commerce among themselves. They're all involved together in secret discussions, writes Jean Baudrillard, who always feared they were up to some such thing. Women weave amongst themselves 
a collusive web of seduction. They signal to each other, whispering in their own strange codes, ciphers beyond his linguistic powers, traveling on grapevines which sidestep centralized modes of communication with their own lateral connections and informal channels. Products are becoming digital. Markets are becoming electronic. This is not only because computers are so widely bought and sold as increasingly cheap and mass-produced terms, but also because of the ubiquity of microchips and microprocessors in goods such as clothes, buildings, cards, roads, cookers, refrigerators, washing machines, knitting machines, and of course the keyboards, samplers, TVs, radios, telephones, fax machines, and modems, which head back to computers themselves. All such digital machines are virtually flush with each other. Every wired house has virtual networks connecting the doorbell, the freezer, and the video. There's even a microchip inside her cat. It would be out of the question for them to profit from their own value, to talk to each other, to desire each other, without the control of the selling, buying, consuming subjects. It might be out of the question, but it happens anyway. The goods do get together. They get smart. They run away. They say that they are inventing a new dynamic. They say they are throwing off their sheets. They say they are getting down from their beds. They say they are leaving the museums, the showcases, the pedestals where they have been installed. They say they are quite astonished that they can move. Monique Wittig, Les Guerrières. I learned fast, says the prostitute, that I didn't need to go down there as a beggar. It's the woman who decides. After a while, I learned that I was the one who made the rules. There were enough people to choose from. If people didn't want to follow my rules, that was it. This is not the only sentiment expressed by women who sell sex, but it is not uncommon. I don't know if I can manage to explain it completely to you, says another. It's so double. The customer has power over me, he's bought me, and I have to do what he wants. But in a way, I have power over him too. I can get him to react the way I want. I'm the one who has control in the situation. He is too busy being horny. I'm the one who has the perspective, not him. This was never in the plan. He hadn't made the women into objects, only to watch the objects come to life. They hadn't functioned as commodities in order to learn to circulate themselves. But if her fluid character has deprived her of all possibility of identity with herself, it is a positive advantage in a future which makes identity a liability. He has never known if she was faking it. Herself, her pleasure, his paternity. She makes up the faces, names, and characters as she goes along. Anna O. While men and women, and later even something called the mass, could all suffer from hysteria, by the end of the 19th century, hysterical had become almost interchangeable 
with feminine. And whereas the inquisitors had attributed this other mind as that of an invasive demonic force, psychoanalysis considered that even the most extreme discontinuities and multiplicities were aspects of what was really an integrated individual. What had once been defined as the devil with which the unsophisticated observation of early superstitious times believed that these patients were possessed was now described by the psychoanalysts as the split-off mind of the hysteric. It is true, wrote Brewer, that a spirit alien to the patient's waking consciousness holds sway in him, but the spirit is not, in fact, an alien one, but part of his own. If hysteria and its treatment became disembodied questions of mental health, and the syndrome was no longer ascribed to the drifting matrices of flesh and blood, the association with a womb which had given hysteria its name guaranteed its specifically female associations. Hysterical women were characterized as oversensitive, self-obsessed, antisocial loners, whose symptoms were extreme versions of behavior patterns common to all women. They were mutable, capricious, unpredictable, temperamental, moody. They were nervous weather systems fluctuating between stormy energy and catatonic calm. And it was still thought that the hysterical patient had some space to be filled a gap in her life to be satisfied. Whereas earlier physicians had placed flowers, like little offerings between their patient's legs, in an effort to encourage the wandering womb to return to its proper place. The new analytical engine was designed to deal with gaps in the memory, to the point at which we have before us an intelligible, consistent, and unbroken case history. Anna O oh would complain of having lost some time and would remark upon the gap in her train of conscious thoughts. Torn apart by the twin pressures of their own longings for autonomy and the demands of familiar and social expectations, women found themselves living several lives, some of them so secret they didn't even seem to know what was going on themselves. After each of her momentary absences, and these were constantly occurring, she did not know what she had thought in the course of it. But she continued to play the parts expected of her, and she often played them very well. While everyone thought she was attending, she was living through fairy tales in her imagination. But she was always on the spot when spoken to, so no one was aware of it. She always kept up appearances, did everything she could to save her face, pulled herself together, remained composed, even when she was dying to fall apart. Social circumstances often necessitate a du duplication of this kind, even when the thoughts involved are of an exacting kind. As for instance, when a woman who is in the throes of extreme worry or of passionate excitement carries out her social duties and the functions of an affable hostess. 
and so she never quite identified with the one-track roles she was supposed to play, the thing for which she was intended to keep fit. Throughout the entire illness, her two states of consciousness persisted side by side, the primary one in which she was quite normal psychically, and the secondary one, which may well be likened to a dream, in view of, in view of its wealth of imaginative products and hallucinations, its large gaps of memory, and the lack of inhibition and control in its associations. While many earlier investigators had ascribed such imbalances to the weaknesses and failings of hysterics, in particular, and women in general, Freud and Breuer described their patients as having the clearest intellect, strongest will, greatest character, and highest critical power. Emmy von N had an unusual degree of education and intelligence, and Anna O was said to be bubbling over with intellectual vitality. If they suffered from anything, it was less a failing than an excess of efficiency. The habitual coexistence of two heterogeneous trains of ideas. The overflowing productivity of their minds, wrote Breuer, has led one of my friends to assert that hysterics are the flower of mankind, as sterile, no doubt, but as beautiful as double flowers. A double flower with a double conscience. Hysterics are always operating in at least two modes, flitting in and out of what Breuer and Freud describe as dispositional hypnoid states, which often, it would seem, grow out of the daydreams, which are so common even in healthy people, and to which needlework and similar occupations render women especially prone. Indeed, there are a whole number of activities from mechanical ones such as knitting or playing scales, to some requiring at least a small degree of mental functioning, all of which are performed by many people with only half their mind on them. The other half is busy elsewhere. Her father long ago in Arizona had cautioned her against jacking in. You don't need it, he'd said, and she hadn't, because she'd dreamed cyberspace as though the neon grid lines of the Matrix waited for her behind her eyelids. William Gibson, Mona Lisa Overdrive